Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the, those of you who are joining us online as well. And uh, it's a delight to be here again as we consider and uh, look for how do we abide in Christ, as that is our focus this fall and going forward. And sometimes life does discourage us, and sometimes we despair. This past week, I was reading some headlines. I had a little more time to take in what was being said. And as I worked through them, I thought to myself, every one of these headlines refers to something difficult or bad. There's a conflict in Azerbaijan. And 70,000, maybe up to 100,000 Armenians have fled an oncoming army. There's always news about the war in Ukraine and the trouble and the struggle of people's lives there. There is bitter political conflict here in Canada and in the United States. There was some gang violence in Sweden that's been going on since September 11th and the whole country is up in arms about what's happening. And after a while, I simply had to stop. It was like an overwhelming flood of difficult realities in the world. And then I think about the direction of our culture and I shake my head at many of the things that I see or hear about, and I don't understand the rationale for decisions or direction, and I wonder what kind of world are my grandkids going to grow up in? And then we all have our own life challenges. If you're in school, you hopefully have some good friends and some support there, but maybe there's a person there that gives you trouble. And you're, you're just trying to figure out, how do I deal with this person, a fellow student, maybe a teacher, maybe a professor, someone there that, that just doesn't like you, or there's a subject you struggle with. And every time you have to deal with it, it kind of brings you down. Or maybe you see the rejection of your faith all around the school. It's not directed at you personally, but it still affects you. Or maybe you're a parent and you're, you're naturally concerned about your children and you want the best for them in life and you want to protect them from life's dangers while preparing them to live in the real world and sometimes you're just wondering, how am I going to do that? Or you go to work and you face challenges that might impact your faith. Maybe people mock your faith. Maybe the company or the boss does things that go against your convictions. Maybe they're pressuring you to do or to say something that uh, you don't want to do, that goes against your convictions. Or maybe life is not going well right now. You're trying to follow the Lord and you just keep getting bad news. Things are not working out. That relationship is getting worse. The health is not being resolved. The loved one that you've been praying for is no closer to Christ, it seems, than when you started praying for them. And our hearts may cry out to God, God, where are you in this? What are you doing? Why is all this stuff happening? Why does it seem like evil is winning? And if any of this describes you in some small way today, you're not alone. God's people have asked these questions throughout history. And today we're going to look at someone 
who lost hope and gave up. He was a faithful follower of God. He had seen God perform great victories, yet he became despondent and defeated and concluded all was lost. Yet this account is about God, and it reveals at least three encouragements that God provides to his people during times of despair and struggle. And I pray that at least one of these will encourage you wherever you are at in life today. And I pray that you will encounter Jesus today as he walks with you and watches over you. So I want to invite you to find on your, in your Bibles or on your devices our text for today is 1 Kings 19. It's on page 268 in the Bibles that we have here if you'd like to follow along. 1 Kings in the Old Testament chapter 19 and I'll be reading the first 18 verses. And it says this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper and when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold there came a voice to him and said what are you doing here Elijah 
He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only, I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah was a prophet raised up by the Lord to minister in the years 875 to about 850 B.C. And he ministered in the northern kingdom called Israel, and it was a very dark spiritual time. A king called Ahab and his wife Jezebel led the nation in idol worship, worshiping the god Baal. They hated the Lord and his prophets, and according to 1 Kings 18, Four, they systematically hunted down and killed the Lord's prophets. So the survivors had to go into hiding. Yet the Lord used Elijah to win great victories. And the greatest victory that he won was in the passage just before our passage today. In chapter 18, verses 20 to 46, we find one of the greatest victories of God over pagan gods in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Elijah faces off against 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They both build altars to their gods and they engage in a simple contest to prove the true God. The prophets of Baal and the prophets of Elijah will ask their God to ignite the wood on their altar. And whichever God responded with fire would prove to be the true God. So the prophets of Baal call upon their God to answer them. And they call and they pray and they cry out from morning until noon. And by this time, Elijah begins to mock them and ask them, where is their God? And they prance around and they cut themselves to show the seriousness of their prayer for a few more hours. But according to 1 Kings 18.29, we read, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah invites the people, the people of Israel are there, to come near his altar and he soaks it with water and he has so much water poured over his altar that it fills some ditches that are dug around the altar. So there is no way a human could ignite the sacrifice on that altar. And then Elijah cries out to the Lord, appealing for an answer, and listen to 1 Kings 18, 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
And then they seize the prophets of Baal and bring them to Elijah and he kills them all. Glad I wasn't a prophet back then and had to do that. Ahab the king is there to witness all of this. But God has not yet finished displaying his greatness. It has not reigned in the land for almost three years as God has shown his displeasure with Israel's worship of Baal. So Elijah goes to pray and a rain cloud forms and Elijah says to the king, get into your chariot now and get back to Jezreel before the rain comes. So Ahab gets on his chariot, he begins riding back to Jezreel, and all of a sudden Elijah blows by him, running in the power of the Lord. And he keeps ahead of the chariot horses for the entire journey back to Jezreel. So the people have witnessed the power of the Lord and the falseness of Baal. And the king also witnesses this. And the king sees the storm coming and rain coming for the first time in three years. And the king sees the prophet supernaturally empowered to outrun his chariot horses. You'd think that this would lead to a revival of sorts. But our passage begins, Ahab returns to tell the queen, Jezebel. And he informs her that the 450 prophets that used to eat at your table who were the Baal priests, are dead. And he likely tells her that Elijah outran my chariot on the way back, and maybe they're having this conversation while it's raining for the first time in three years. But instead of repenting and responding to this one true God, Jezebel hardens her resolve against the Lord and against his prophet. She sends a messenger to Elijah with a curse. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of the now dead Baal prophets by this time tomorrow. Now in my eyes, that is a dumb move on Jezebel's part. Why would she send a messenger to tell Elijah she's going to have him killed within 24 hours? Why not just send the assassin? But maybe she's afraid of the power surrounding Elijah. Maybe she doesn't want to face him directly for fear that he will call down this same fire upon her. Yet, her message devastates Elijah. And it seems like he forgets this massive spiritual triumph that has just happened. Verse 3 tells us he was afraid. So he runs from far in the north to the furthest city in the south, Beersheba, the last city before the desert. And he leaves his servant in Beersheba and travels a day's journey into the wilderness and there finds a broom tree or a juniper tree, those kind of trees that can survive the harsh climate of the desert and then he sits down and expresses his despair. So, the end of verse 4. To the Lord. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he asked the Lord to kill him. He wants to die. And suicide is not an option for the people of God, so... 
he needs God to do it. He concludes, I've accomplished nothing more than previous prophets. And I thought that maybe he thought the Lord would bring a great revival and it didn't happen. And Jezebel threatens him, so he gives up. And it seems like Jezebel has won. She has discouraged the prophet. He suddenly removes himself from the battleground between Baal and the Lord. Jezebel doesn't even have to kill him. Elijah asks the Lord to do it. But here comes the first piece of encouragement. God's purposes continue even during apparent enemy victories. Yes, Jezebel struck fear into Elijah, but she didn't scare God. The Lord would not back down because of Jezebel's threats. The Lord was not surprised by this or confused about how to respond. His purposes would continue, and Ahab and Jezebel were doomed. Though they still held power, they were nothing compared to the Lord. And we will soon hear of his comprehensive plan to bring them down. But when you and I start to think that evil is winning, we need to step back to regain perspective. Every time it looked like evil won in the Bible, God was at work accomplishing his purposes. And the greatest example of this is the cross itself. Judas successfully betrayed Jesus. The chief priests successfully got a conviction. They successfully pressured Pilate to crucify Jesus, and Pilate caved and did it for them, and Jesus died, and it looked like the end of the Jesus movement. Yet through the cross, Jesus resoundingly defeated death and sin and the devil in what looked like a victory for evil. So when we feel like evil is winning, we have to go back to the cross and ponder what God accomplished through all that. So God's purposes continue even during apparent enemy victories. But Elijah did not yet realize this. And after his despondent statement, he lies down to sleep and hopes he will never wake up again. So what does the Lord do? Does the Lord tell Elijah what's going on? Does the Lord rebuke Elijah for his lack of faith? Does the Lord correct Elijah's skewed perspective? No. The Lord sends help to look after Elijah's basic needs. An angel touches Elijah, points to a miraculous provision of food and drink. Elijah eats and drinks. Then he lies down and sleeps again. Then the angel comes again and touches him more food and drink is provided, and the angel says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Elijah's life is not over. He's still got a journey to make. So here's the second encouragement. God provides for his people's needs when they are despondent and ready to give up. God doesn't immediately speak to Elijah about his mission. He strengthens him to keep going despite his discouragement. And God has done this for his people throughout history. There's a time when David and his men returned to their city 
and found it plundered and their wives and children taken away. And David's men were so angry and embittered against him they wanted to kill him. But 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Or when Jesus faced that agonizing decision to go to the cross, not my will but yours be done, the Lord sends an angel to strengthen him. Or when Paul faces the final trial of his life. Listen to what he says, 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. At my first defense, no one came to stand with me. Everyone deserted me, but may it not be charged against them. For the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And friends, life contains its share of discouragement and disappointment. However, the Lord never abandons us. He never leaves us. We can look at our circumstances and conclude that. We feel like he's abandoned us when life goes bad, but we must fight those feelings and fears with faith in him and his promises. Like Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine. So God can do way more than what you are asking him for. God can do far more abundantly than you can even imagine asking him for. He's so attuned to our lives and needs that he will provide the basics so that we can keep going, even in discouragement. So, with this food and drink, Elijah makes this journey down to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, and it takes him 40 days and 40 nights, a very important number, a very important image. For Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on this same mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he was tempted. So Elijah makes this 40-day, 40 40-night 40 journey down to Mount Horeb. He finds a cave on the mountain to stay in, and the Lord comes to ask him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he's had 40 days to think about this. And he's seen God's victory on Carmel. And he's experienced the provision of the Lord, the supernatural provision of the Lord. Yet it seems like he's still in the same frame of mind. He answers, verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, I have every justification to be here, Lord. I've been zealous for you. Nobody listens. They continue to break covenant with you. They don't worship you. They've killed all the prophets. I'm the only one left. They're hunting me. I have every right to be here. And we know that at least one of his conclusions is wrong. For according to 1 Kings 18, we know at least 100 prophets have survived and are in hiding in the northern kingdom. 
So he's not the only one left, but he thinks he is. And the Lord responds, but not with an immediate correction of Elijah's claims. The Lord commands him to go out and stand on the mountain. And the Lord then passes by in a strong wind that tore into the mountain and broke rocks into pieces. But the Lord did not speak from the wind. And then the Lord sends an earthquake. But the Lord did not speak from the earthquake. And then the Lord sends fire. But the Lord did not speak from the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a still small voice in the King James and he asked the same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you would think, well, maybe these awesome displays of God's power have changed Elijah's perspective. Maybe they have reminded him of the greatness of God. And he'll begin to think differently. But Elijah gives the same answer. Word for word, verse 14 and verse 10. It's like Elijah didn't see or hear anything from God. Or maybe he didn't want to hear. And there's a clue to this possibility in the text. In verse 11, the Lord commands him to go out and stand be on the mount before the Lord. Well, did, the Lord actually, or did Elijah actually do that? Did he actually go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, because look where Elijah is in verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, the still small voice, he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, which means he was in the cave. So did he stay in the cave the whole time the Lord was doing these remarkable works, maybe because he didn't want to listen or hear from the Lord? His answer shows no change of heart, no change of perspective, despite the Lord's powerful display. And sometimes you and I may not want to hear from God. We're willing to throw our complaints and frustrations up to him. We're willing to justify our despair, but we don't want to hear from him. We might not want to let God's and his words penetrate our hearts. And if you're following in the Abide series, lesson three is all about reasons why we don't hear from God. And I think he has about 15 of them. And these include, we don't really want to hear from God because he might mess up our plans. Or we don't want to surrender to God until we first know what he wants. Or we harbor unconfessed sin, blocking our relationship with God. Or we don't know how to hear from God. Or we may not believe that we can hear from God. Or we might be too busy to listen to God. Or we might do all the talking and never listen to God. Or we might fear people more than we fear God. Or we might conclude God can only speak in an audible voice and since we haven't heard that, he hasn't spoken to us. Or we might be blinded by life's troubles. Or the enemy might be attacking us. Or we might have given in to fear over faith. It can happen to anyone like a faithful, courageous prophet. Here's one of the most zealous prophets of God. He's courageously faced an evil king and queen. Yet now, despite God's care and his displays of power and mercy, he does not hear God. 
or he will not listen. Yet, God still speaks to him. And this is the third encouragement I'd like to pass on to you today. God purposefully speaks to his people. And sometimes his words or questions can cause us to examine where we're at in life. What are you doing here, Elijah? Who do people say that I am, Peter? Why did you doubt, disciples, O you of little faith, in the midst of this storm? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Do you want to be healed, man who has been lame for 40 years, lying by the pool? Sometimes God's words or questions cause us to examine ourselves. Sometimes God's word gives us new purpose. Elijah is commanded to go anoint the next king of Syria, which is kind of weird since he's a prophet of Israel and he's anointing the king of a foreign nation, and also anoint the next king of Israel and anoint his successor, Elisha. And God will use these three to bring down Ahab, Jezebel, and all of their descendants. So God's word gives Elijah new purpose. And some of us here today might be stuck on the why question. Why did that happen? Why are things not going well? And God might be saying to us, you know, you got to leave that with me for now, but focus on what I have for you next. And so God gives us new purpose. But notice God's word not only causes us to examine ourselves, it not only gives us new purpose, it can also give us new perspective. And God gives Elijah an incredible gift in verse 18. He says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So the Lord gives Elijah perspective. He's not the only one. And not every Israelite has rejected the Lord. In fact, there's 7,000 who haven't. They still remain true to the Lord. And we need such perspective sometimes. We're not the only ones who suffer. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So fiery trials are common for God's people. Or 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So the temptations we face aren't unique. Every believer faces them. And though we may be the only believer at our work, on our team, in our class, in our family. We're not the only believer in the world. We're not alone. And God will purposefully speak to remind his people of these larger perspectives. If we will listen. And, and what have we seen so far? We've seen God's purposes continue despite apparent enemy victories. God provides for our needs when we're despondent and defeated. God will purposely speak to his people, but we need to listen and then act on his word. And so the main point I'd like to share with you today, and your response needs to be this. Since God renews his people by his word, we 
must listen for it and then do it. And the question is the same one as last week. Who have we been listening to? Have we made space and time in our lives and brains to listen to the Lord and then act on what he says? For he's waiting with encouragement and strength to keep us going to whatever is next. And so as we come to him in prayer now, I want to invite you to bring to the Lord something that's troubling you right now, something that concerns you, something that bothers you, that thing that is in your life that is just dragging you down, whatever that is, please bring it to the Lord now. Just bring it to mind. And Lord, you know what is being raised up to you right now, whatever the concerns are. Whatever the doubts, maybe they're doubts, maybe they're health issues, maybe there's some problem. You know what it is, Lord. And, and maybe this thing has been used by the enemy or maybe in our own thinking to block, to block our communication with God and we can't see beyond it. And so right now, Lord, whatever is being thought about in, in, in the minds of everyone here and online, I pay, pray that you would penetrate through that with a flood of assurance of your love, of your care, of your compassion, of your mercy, of your perspective and power. And, and we praise you, God, that you are always at your work. Always. Even when it seems like evil is winning. And that you treat us mercifully and gently when we are in despair. And that you purposefully Speak to us if only we will listen and make space for that in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, for strength to do that, to fight the other voices that compete for our attention and to make this room and space to hear from you. And we praise you that you are the God of encouragement. You are the God of salvation and victory and eternal you are eternal and will bring us home but until then Lord continue to sustain us and grow us and keep us according to your glorious will in Jesus name we pray amen